today, 10 days from today, on May 4th, uh, my wife, Carrie, and I will be celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. 20th wedding anniversary. So uh, she's sitting back there with my son, our son, just in front of the sound booth. So if you think about it 10 days from now, you might want to get her a gift. 20 years putting up with me. She deserves uh, something. And so for that. But one day, uh, you're standing at the altar, looking into each other's eyes. And the next day, uh, you're looking back at two decades of life together, wondering where the time has gone. Much to my surprise, all of those cliches about the time flying uh, prove themselves to be true. Uh, Carrie and I were engaged on Christmas Day of 2001. I've some, told you some of, the, uh, some of you have heard that story. Not going to go into that today. Uh, but as I mentioned, we got married on May 4th, 2002. So that comes out to 129 days of engagement. Now, I know that that's not necessarily the longest engagement, but she could not wait to marry me, and so we had to set it quick. Um, but 129 days of engagement, 129 days of planning and preparation, 129 days spent finding a venue for the ceremony, finding a venue for the reception, finding a, a caterer for the reception, choosing groomsmen and bridesmaids, her picking out a wedding dress, me picking out a tux, registering for gifts, sending out invitations, looking at apartments that we would live in after we got married, going through premarital counseling, surviving bachelor and bachelorette parties, uh, and countless other things that needed to be done, both large and small. For the record, when I say surviving a bachelor party, I truly, truly mean that. Uh, my bachelor party was planned by my best friend, and it included um, paintball, a uh, vicious game of paintball, but then at the end of the night, we had an indoor, I'm not kidding, indoor in a room about this size, probably an indoor bottle rocket fight. Uh, and so there were some injuries, all the classic stuff about you're going to get hit in the eye. He, he, my best friend got hit in the eye. Uh, I got hit directly in the chest, and it left a scar, a burn mark right here for weeks afterwards. Uh, so anyway... We did truly survive. Um, we were younger and, you know, all that stuff. So, uh, but then after all the planning and the preparation and the buildup and anticipation, you have the rehearsal, and then you have the rehearsal dinner, and, of course, the big day, which includes pictures, the ceremony itself, more pictures, uh, the reception, the wedding night, and lastly, after all of that has been said and done, you have the subsequent honeymoon, which we took to lovely, balmy, warm Minneapolis uh, in May. We were super young and didn't have a lot of money, and so Minneapolis was it, and it was great. Uh, and then as the saying goes, the honeymoon is over, and you start to live what's most often referred to as normal life, whatever that means uh, exactly. My best guess is that it means that you start figuring out how to live together and how to navigate life together and how to make decisions as a team. You know, you also discover things about one another like who hogs the covers, uh, who snores, who leaves empty milk cartons in the fridge, uh, and who sets up the toilet paper roll so you have to pull from underneath instead of on top like it's supposed to be done, right? It's not, you don't pull from underneath on the backside. That's not, that's not right. And so, uh, but of course, none, none of this is normal, right? Because normal is whatever your individual lives were like prior to marriage. Uh, what you're experiencing now is a new normal. You're adjusting to a new way of life. And that takes a fair amount of adjustment. 
Uh, and as anyone who is married or has been married knows, it's not always that easy to settle in. Along with the relational speed bumps you may encounter, there's hopefully uh, a superior element of excitement and adventure as you traverse through uncharted territory together, with the end result being that with each passing year, you grow in the depth of love and intimacy and patience and understanding for each other. Now, one thing you may not know about me as a pastor is that as a general rule, I do not do premarital counseling. There are exceptions, of course, but the only way that I will say yes these days is if the couple who's asking for premarital counseling is genuinely, truly, authentically willing to consider the possibility that maybe they shouldn't get married. So if we're going through premarital counseling and we are doing this kind of stuff and there seem to be some really obvious hang-ups, some really obvious conflicts, some unresolved issues, some things that I deem like this is probably not the best way to enter into a marriage and maybe you need to think about this for a while. Unless they're genuinely ready and able and willing to consider that, I'm like, let's, let's not do the premarital counseling. If they're dead set on getting hitched no matter what, right, I'll take a hard pass on the premarital counseling, and I'll instead mandate post-marital counseling at the three, six, nine, and 12-month marks, and then as needed after that. The reason for this approach is that I believe premarital counseling deals mostly in theory with people who have stars in their eyes, right? Whereas post-marital counseling deals in concrete reality with people who may have stars circling above their heads. Like in the old cartoons where somebody gets an anvil dropped on them that was pushed off of a cliff or like Jordan when he ran down those stairs and, and stuff like that. So this happens, right? This switch happens because they've collided with something in themselves or in their spouse or in both that they did not expect to bump into. And those conditions that realization, they offer a much better chance for the council to actually land and make an impact and produce necessary change. They've gone through the dating phase, through the engagement phase, through the wedding day and the honeymoon, and upon encountering something unforeseen, they can left, be left wondering, what now? What now? What now that we are in the nitty-gritty redundancy of everyday life? What now that we have a lifetime ahead of us and we really need to get this thing figured out? What now that we are in deep and need some guidance and maybe even a life raft? At this point, you may be wondering what any of this has to do with anything that may resemble a sermon? And that's a fair question to ask. So let's shift gears a little bit. Shifting gears, okay? Whatever that looks like, do it for your mind. So I want you to imagine, and if you need to close your eyes to do this, you can. But we're going to stick with this for a while, so it's up to you. But I want you to imagine for a moment, for the next several minutes, that you are one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Well, uh, maybe not Judas. So let's choose one of the 11, okay, instead. Whoever happens to be your favorite, pick him. And if you don't know them all, that's okay. And if you don't have a favorite, that's okay. Just imagine yourself being there in the situation that I'm about to describe. 
at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before he's done much of anything or established his fame in the region, he sees you. He sees you fishing. He sees you mending your nets. He sees you at the tax collection booth. Or he sees you framing a house, doing a construction project. Or any number of other places you might be, depending on who you are. And he extends an invitation to you to come and see, to come and follow him. And you, whoever you are, you are shell-shocked. You are absolutely blown away because normally it's the other way around. Normally, someone desiring to follow a rabbi in the ancient Near East first century, any rabbi they wanted to follow, would have to essentially beg that rabbi to become one of his students. And before that rabbi would agree to anything, would allow you to follow him or even consider to allowing you to follow him, the potential disciple you would have to prove himself worthy. He'd have to prove himself through his devotion to and zeal for Yahweh. He'd have to prove himself via his knowledge of the Torah, as well as his ability to understand and teach it. And he'd have to earn a yes from the rabbi by demonstrating his dedication to personal holiness and keeping the law down to the smallest detail. Some of you know that there were 10 commands, but what you may not know is that the Israelites were actually given over 600 commands that they were expected to follow. And the rabbi would have examined potential students to ensure that they were keeping all 600 plus of these. But in this case, in your case, in a move that was literally unprecedented, Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth has asked you to be his disciple. And if that weren't enough to make your head spin, you're also in a state of disbelief because you, Peter, you, Matthew, you, Thomas, you, Philip, you have exactly zero of the standard credentials deemed necessary for such an honor. You are a wine-guzzling fisherman roughneck. Or you are a traitor to the nation of Israel. Or you are a violent and angry man. You are a nobody from nowheresville with an elementary school level education in the Torah. You are far, far from the standard best of the best of the best type of man that would typically become a disciple of a given rabbi. You are truly, when it comes to the religious hierarchy, the least of these. And never in your wildest dreams did you ever allow yourself to consider that a rabbi and that Jesus of Nazareth, no less, would call for you and offer you the chance to learn from him and maybe eventually someday be like him, follow in his footsteps. So, You've been called, and your head is spinning, but you gather yourself. You take a deep breath. You clear your head. You collect your thoughts. You rein in your emotions, and as you're doing this, you grasp the gravity of the moment, the gravity of this opportunity. You recognize with great clarity that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and as such, you don't have a second to waste. You still with me? Still imagining this? 
You recognize there won't be another chance, so you drop your nets, or you tell someone to sell the fish for you and keep the money, or you leave your tax booth, or you put down your sword, and you follow Jesus. And following him, being one of his students, is nothing like you'd ever imagined, because number one, you'd never imagined it. And number two, because Jesus is so very different from any rabbi that you've ever seen or heard of. So for three and a half years, you and 11 other assorted misfits are joined to Jesus at the hip. You live with him, you eat with him, you listen to him teach, and you watch him heal, and you watch him work miracles. You see him walking on water, coming out to you in the boat, You're on a boat when he tells a storm to stop, and it stops. You watch him raise people from the dead. You watch him tell demons to leave, just leave, and they leave. You watch him heal people from hundreds and tens or whatever of miles away without even being there. He just says something, and the person is healed, and you watch all this stuff. And every time you see something, it blows your mind. You never get used to the miracles. You watch him feed 5,000 plus people with just some loaves and a couple of fish, and you don't realize what's happening. And then a little bit later, he does it again, and you're still blown away. You never get used to it. And that I mean that in the best possible sense of that. You always have this sense of awe and wonder, and what's he going to do next, and what might happen next, and you love the spirit of adventure, of following him. You don't mind the fact that you really don't have a consistent place to sleep, that you're nomadic, and that there's, you know, you're getting some flack from some people because this is all so worth it. It's just unbelievable. And as time passes and you witness all of this stuff, and imagine right now whatever it is that you just think that Jesus did as a miracle that's mind-blowing, As you watch this stuff and spend more time with him, as time passes, you realize that Jesus is not just a rabbi, that he is also the son of God, the long-awaited, long-prayed-for Messiah. And somehow, in some way, you, you are going to play a part in helping him rescue and redeem the nation of Israel and establish his throne. Most nights, when you drift off to sleep, you dream about what it will look like when his kingdom comes. You think about how big your room in the palace is going to be. You wonder what title you'll receive. If you're James and John, your mom even asks, like, could my boys get the, you know, prime spots? You imagine eating the best food you've ever eaten and wearing silk like all the time, just all silk all the time, right? And telling your servants, you know, whoever is serving you, you're telling your servants, you just imagine this, make sure you have my coffee, my newspaper ready at the same time every morning or else. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, after three and a half mind-boggling life-changing, earth-shattering, time-flying-by sort of years. You watch in shock and horror as your Jesus, your friend, your rabbi, is betrayed by one of your own. 
And then he's arrested. And then he's brought to trial. And then he's condemned to die via crucifixion. And all of this happens in just a matter of hours and days. You go one night from dreaming how big your room in the palace is going to be and all this, and suddenly your world's turned upside down. And of course, over the three and a half years, Jesus had talked repeatedly and mysteriously about how it would eventually come down to something like this, but you didn't believe him. You couldn't believe him, right? You didn't want to believe him. After all, I mean, how could the Son of God God's anointed, the Messiah of Israel, allow himself to be torn to shreds by Roman whips and nailed to a Roman torture device. And on the day it happened, when he was crucified, it was surreal and it was more than you could bear to watch. And depending on which disciple you're imagining yourself to be right now, you may have chosen not to watch. All you can think about is how cruel this life can be. How you received something you never expected to receive, this beautiful gift, and you got your hopes up. You really and truly believed in something, and now it's all been destroyed. And you can't help but wonder if it wouldn't have been better if you were never called at all. The idea that it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all, you think, uh, was clearly put forth by someone who had never loved and lost. At least not in this way. The couple of days after his death, all you could do was sit and stare at a blank wall. You couldn't eat. You couldn't sleep. You didn't want to talk to or see anyone. In fact, you couldn't even cry because the whole thing seemed so surreal that it numbed your emotions and it left you in a sort of state of suspended animation. But then, in the midst of your fog, but then, in the midst of your despair, but then, in the midst of your hollow and empty feeling, your condition, he showed up. He showed up. At first you thought you must have been hallucinating or that it was a ghost, but neither of those were true. He was alive. He was fully alive. He was alive? How was he alive? I mean, you'd watched him die or you'd heard that he was definitely killed. But it turns out he'd been raised from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit, which you understood conceptually But to see Jesus standing in front of you, it was an otherworldly experience. And yes, that's exactly what it was. It was otherworldly in the truest and best sense of the word. You are so thankful, so thankful that he is alive. Still with me? Still imagining? While it was most certainly him, it was a different version of him, like at least physically, I mean, he could, like, teleport. And he could pass through walls without moving a single brick, but he still liked to eat fish and bread. And from that miraculous day forward, Jesus continued to talk to you and the others about the kingdom of God and what it truly was going to look like. And on numerous occasions, 
he did something to prove once again that he was indeed alive because it was all still so crazy. And the 11 of, the 11 of you had a hard time wrapping your minds around it. And as he taught, you listened intently, more intently than ever before, all the while wondering what he was going to do next, what sort of adventure he was going to take you on, how he might get his revenge on Rome. But then, as if everything that had happened in the past three and a half years wasn't enough of a whirlwind, one day, about six weeks after his resurrection, he told all of you to go into Jerusalem and to wait there until you received power from the Holy Spirit, which sounded amazing. You were pumped. Yes, it's about time we got some power. Until the part where he said that he was leaving. Leaving? You just got back. Leaving? Wait, what? Then as you were standing there with your mouth wide open, you're leaving. What are you talking about? He was taken up into the clouds and into heaven before your very eyes. Acts 1, 9 through 11, recounts a bit of this. After he said this, he being Jesus, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Why are you staring at the sky? Why are you staring at the sky? Are you kidding me right now, angels? Do you re not realize what's just happened? Jesus, he was dead, then he's alive, and now he just floated up into heaven. That's why we're looking at the sky. Seems like a perfectly normal human reaction. Why are you acting like it's no big deal, angels? Can you imagine being one of them? Standing there as Jesus ascended into heaven and thinking and maybe even looking at each other because they told you not to look up. So you look at each other and you think, well, what now? What now? What now that we are in the nitty-gritty redundancy of everyday life? What now that we have a lifetime ahead of us? You could throw that up. That'd be great. What now that we have a lifetime ahead of us? And we really need to get this thing figured out. What now that we are in deep? I mean, three and a half years with Jesus, he was killed. He came back. He floated up. He told us to go and wait. We're pretty in pretty deep. <laughs> what now that we are in deep and we need some guidance and maybe a life raft? Because how are we going to do this thing? As Jordan mentioned before I came up, we are kicking off 
a six-week series. Today is week one. It will end the end of May, right before we head into the summer. And the series is called, What Now? What Now? And I just gave you the concept for it. It's this idea that after all this stuff had happened in three and a half years, the disciples stood there and they wondered, what do we do now? And the good news is that the book of Acts gives us an account, a testimony, descriptions, all kinds of things for what they did now, for what it looked like after the ascension of Jesus and after and on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to be spending the next five weeks after today really looking intently into how the early church acted, how the apostles responded, what it looked like when power from the Holy Spirit came upon them, what things took place. And in order for this series, I think, to be maximally effective, we're going to need your help, your participation in this. So here is your assignment between today and I just gave you this big intro between today and next Sunday. Here's what I would like and request uh, that you would do. Read Acts, the book of Acts, one, chapters 1 through 10 this week. And I want you to, as you're reading it, answer the following questions, okay? Just think about it, jot it down. You can take pictures, take notes right now. But if you have a journal or your phone or whatever it is, Answer these questions and think about these things coming into the next five weeks. Question one, what were Jesus' parting instructions to his disciples? I just touched on that briefly, but really go through and read the entire passage because I didn't do that. What were Jesus' parting instructions to his disciples? What was the response then of the disciples? How did, it, how did they act? How did they receive it? Jesus left them with the promise what was their response when they received the fulfillment of that? Question three is what happened on the day of Pentecost? What happened on the day of Pentecost? Whether you know it or not, I know we don't talk a lot around here about the Christian calendar, but Easter, the time between Easter, right, is there's like a, there's like a five or six week, it's 40 days, gap of time that leads up to another celebration, which is the day of Pentecost, so what happened on the day of Pentecost? Number four. Just two more. Number four. What things seemed to be the primary focus of the early church? So you're going you're gonna to see the establishment, the birth of the church. The church didn't exist in its current form or anything similar until the day of Pentecost. So what things, when the church was formed, seemed to be important to them, seemed to be a primary focus? Where do they put their time and energy and resources? And number five, do you think any of this or any of the things they did has any level of relevance for you individually, for us corporately today? And if so, what might it be? Now, if you want to read further than Acts chapter 10, I'd encourage you to do so, but you'll really get a great picture, some powerful, incredible stuff. It's just more whirlwind type stuff that's going on. Beautiful stuff. The birth of the church. Acts chapter 3 is 
besides the story of Joseph, Acts chapter 3 is my absolute favorite chapter of the Bible. So if you remember that when you're reading it, it's just incredibly powerful, and there's so much to glean from that. So what now? What now that Jesus has ascended, and he's left it in our hands, but he hasn't left us alone? He's given us a gift, and what does it look like? What should it look like? What now? Read Acts chapter, Acts 1 through 10 this week. Answer those questions. Come with your notes next Sunday. I'm really excited for the next five weeks to talk about it in greater detail. That's it. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you that when you left, you gave us a promise that you would send your spirit. You even told us that it would be better for you to leave so that the spirit could come, the comforter could come that he could infuse us with power, the same power that raised you from the grave. Just pray for the next five weeks that this would be an impactful series, that it wouldn't just be five more sermons, five more weeks of of teaching and preaching, that it would be transformative, that it would be life-changing, that it would lift us up, that it would make us think differently than we thought before, and that we would ultimately come out of it transformed and made more and more like you with each passing day. Jesus, it's all about you. We thank you for who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.